32 counties. United by people. My name is Una. And my name is Andrea. And this is United, United Ireland. Ireland. Every week on United Ireland, we go under the hood of issues in Ireland beyond the headlines, bringing you smart people who know what they're talking about. I'm in quite an echoey room today. I apologize for that in advance. I'm also in a building site, so I apologize for that. <laughs> Just all about finessing the sound is what we're about. Um, do you know what might make us finesse the sound? Is knowing that this podcast runs entirely on the fuel from Patreon, and maybe we might finally buy that uh, microphone I've spoken of, well, <laughs> you've spoken about for how many months we've been in a pandemic? A year. Um, so maybe pop a bit of petrol in our tank um, of the green variety and at patreon.com forward slash United Ireland. And maybe we'll take uh, some budget to get that perfect sound. Can't promise, yes. but if you keep do- donating the wrong word, paying for the content that we lovingly make. Yes. And I was delighted to see some new patrons this week. So thank you so much for the new people who've signed up three euro a month or more, if you can afford it, if you can't, um, if you're not into that or you can't afford it or whatever, totally grand. Just tell people about the podcast and review us on iTunes. I actually don't give a shit about reviews on iTunes, but apparently it bumps it up. It like does something to the algorithm and makes yeah, but it just bumps you up on the charts. Who cares? Yeah, but I nevertheless, I think we I should think try and increase our, our engagement around the podcast in order to grow and become sustainable and successful. So you can do that by going to patreon.com forward slash United Ireland. I feel like this is not the time to start my lecture about how growth is not um, a measure of success and how we actually need to look at degrowth. So maybe whoever signed up on Patreon, if you could sign back out, I'm joking. No, no. This is <laughs> the best. In a, in a, in a two year run of terrible asks and sells for getting people to support us, that really stands out right now. Um, speaking of growth and degrowth, uh, as the entire political and media sphere wakes up to the housing crisis overnight, apparently, <laughs> as we were discussing last week in the podcast, and the destruction of futures for people in their 20s and 30s in Ireland, a fascinating new report from the ESRI has the hard data to back up intergenerational inequality that is making millennials worse off than their parents. It's so not, it's just the pits, isn't it? Like, it's the pits. I also feel completely gaslit by everything having been written writing about this subject specifically for so many years. And then you're turning on the news and you're like, yeah, apparently, you know, all these investment funds are buying things up and, you know, it's it's really hard for young people. Like, what are they going to do? It's like, oh my God, I'm well, actually losing my mind. Speaking of growing and stuff, maybe each time you write this shit, not shit, this beautiful prose, <laughs> <laughs> you could uh, send it directly to the people who need to read it. That, you could do I mean, I think life. that's the entire point of writing for the Irish Times is because the people involved in it actually are reading that newspaper. Um, clearly... Uh, in his newsletter, I'm on it. <laughs> yeah. Clearly my my decade of columns in the Irish Times have had a very gradual impact um, that is coming to fruition now. Slow and steady wins the race. Anyway, we'll uh, be... Sean Defoe did a tweet earlier saying, uh, it's really interesting watching the doll wake up to the fact that under 30s exist. <laughs> Yeah. Um, and also that millennials are knocking 40, which is probably why um, the the politicians are freaking out. Wait until they hear about Gen Z. What am I? Uh, I'm not a millennial, am I? No, I think, well, I think you might be. I'm a boomer. Uh, 
No, you're Gen X, surely. Gen X. Yeah. You're like very, very late Gen X. You're on the cusp is what I'm trying to say. Libra rising. <laughs> um, so we'll be joined by one of the authors of that report to find out how screwed everyone is and how to make things better, which uh, would be good. Um, right. And we're, all, we're, we're about solutions, not just giving out about things. So 100%. Yeah. Don't worry. If you are already depressed about this, this podcast is definitely not going to make you more depressed. It's going to give you some answers, some of the data to back up the existential crisis you've been living in for uh, since the crash hit. And also just feel positive, even though it can be like really annoying and head in hand stuff when politicians finally talk about all of the shit that loads people have been talking about for years. That's progress. It's too slow it is reactionary. It's going to make for ham-fisted um, populist policies that won't be good. But what is changing is the consciousness is being raised. And this is an issue now that is being backed up with proper research, proper data, as we're going to hear from the author of uh, that part of the report. And things are changing. So darks for all the dawn and all that, pals. Viva la revolution! And now it's time for the State of the Nation. Now, Andrea, um, I don't know if many people know this, but you actually own a nail bar uh, called Tropical Popical and it's back in business along with many other businesses this week. How are you feeling about your return to um, the capitalist hellscape that is running a business? No, you're not a capitalist hellscape. You're a joyful, beautiful, wondrous, white claw filled Girls Allowed Megamix playing parlor of positivity that brings so many people so much joy. And I'm delighted you're back in biz. I am. But do you know what? And I hate to, like, I feel like I'm always moaning. There's all, I'll go on. There's always something wrong. I'm obviously delighted. Woohoo, buzzing. And then today I, I actually felt like I had full on post-traumatic stress syndrome. I'm like, that was the most traumatic few months ever. And now I'm, that's what I'm living in now. So I need to take four days and sleep through it and then I'll wake up to joy. But on the plus side, it's very joyous. Good. I'm glad. Uh, I'm most joyous though about pennies, the excitement over pennies. Um, I just think it's so gas and lovely and whatever. But the best thing was in Scotland, loads of huns arrived up to pennies in a big stretch hummer, a big white stretch hummer. <laughs> they were living their best pennies life. And then another story about someone in pennies, they borrowed someone's uniform and just walked in as if they were going to work and then just spent their whole time because you have to do it all by appointment bought all their bits and then strutted out absolute genius i used to uh, know a guy who um had a hmv t-shirt remember they used to have these like navy kind of yeah. polo shirts with the and he used to just go into hmv and like tell people what to buy and what not to buy like he didn't work there and think he'd like that's shit put that down <laughs> Um, <laughs> that's weird <laughs> well now just back when we had time uh, to be doing such larks um, I did see a funny thing on the, the academy on Middle Abbey Street has been really nailing their uh, signage all through the pandemic and they had um, a sign up today saying asking for a guest list for pennies which is pretty good um, people are you know, selling tickets to it yeah like on Dundee yeah it's banana town the digital hub is being wound down. Um, that is the complex of startups and offices and stuff like that in the Liberties, 
was way back when was kind of one of the parachuted in type entities into that area um but has served an awful lot of people quite well and that is going to be given over to housing so this is one of the first kind of land development agency kind of vibes that we're going to be seeing and some people are pissed off that the government made the decision and the council didn't um but that's what's happening so that's kind of an end of an era in a weird way speaking of digital life tiktok are taking an office that do you remember last year when google pulled out of that office move yeah and there was big hoo-ha about like it's the end of offices and tech and blah 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 well, TikTok are taking the office and that's Tech sorting off. saved. <laughs> yeah. Um, but it's interesting because there's going to be lots of musical chairs with regards to commercial property at the moment. So I thought that was an interesting thing. They say they're going to have 2,000 staff in there next year um, down the Docklands, obviously. Grand God, Canal. Have all that co-living space. <laughs> yeah. Um, so Simon Harris would be delighted with that. Uh, what else is going on? Um, cultural chauvinism. I'm oh, dead. yeah. I just <laughs> saw this thing. Ireland scored 42%. Yeah. So cultural chauvinism is um, when people think that their culture is like superior. And to this statement, the percentage of people agreeing that our people are not perfect, but our culture is superior to other others. 42% of Irish people uh, agreed with that, which is kind of the middle ground in Europe. The Greeks, 89%. So um but I As think you, because so many people agree with us around the world that ours should be higher. Yeah. I mean, maybe we're just being kind of like coy. Um, but I thought that was an interesting thing about people's perception of themselves. You have something here about um, Antashka. Oh, yes. Um, so Antashka have brought an appeal against Glambia creating a dairy cheese factory and um, thing thing and uh, the government bizarrely have stepped in and asked people to not asked Antashka not to go ahead loads of people are signing up now to join Antashka to support them uh, the people who work there are like this is exhausting I can't believe the government with the government onslaught now that's happening to us thank you for your support um, because basically with dairy a lot of nitrates go into the water and it ruins um, our Rivers, yeah, um, and it feels like that. Um, for once again, uh, what's that? Capitalism is winning over over saving our environment, and we talk so much about like how we have to make changes, and we're literally just going, "Let's build a big, huge uh, dairy factory." Not the winner, but then uh, Holly Kearns today in the doll was like, "It's very odd that the." Uh, T-Shock has stepped in to this, mm. especially when he gave out, he told me that it was inappropriate for me, for me to step in as a politician into the Vesper stuff. And he's like, I didn't say that. And then the receipts are there, Michal, I'm afraid to say. Um, so that's a bit of a stinger for Michal, being absolutely stung, caught rapid. Um, fair play to Holly for uh, bringing that up and remembering. Um, Far be it from a finful politician to interfere with any kind of planning um, process. But also, this is a side note, I really feel like the zing has been inserted into the sock dams this year. Why do you think that is? Why do I think that is? I don't know. I think there must have been a decision made to be like, okay, let's let's get them, girls. 
<laughs> I realize that's exactly how the meeting went. Is that not their tagline? Um, girls Uh, but it does it feels like and also I was saying it to you you can feel the difference in their social media since Colette Brown has taken over it definitely got punchier Um, but overall the kind of they've definitely they've definitely got a pep in their step they had a pep in their step but it's it's a fiercer step now Tyler has been training I think that um, how well their politicians have been performing in the Dáil, um, primarily Holly and Gary, Holly Cairns and Gary and Gannon. Kian. And Cian, yeah, all friends of the pod, as so many uh, diverse uh, group of politicians are from all political backgrounds. Um, so, yeah. Uh, w- oh, yes, this is something I was watching um, a parliamentary committee this morning, uh, the live stream. Because that's my life, Andrea. And uh, it was the first time a parliamentary committee in the world heard testimony from Facebook moderators. And Foxglove, who are kind of a legal, uh, kind of a a coalition of kind of legal tech um, advocacy people who are advocating for uh, people's working rights and legal rights uh, in tech, were uh, there was a representative representative from them and there was also a Facebook moderator who's working in Dublin who was detailing her experience and the fear that people have about speaking out um, and the culture that you know is obviously the work itself is horrific um, and causes huge amount of mental trauma and basically they're kind of relaying their experiences. Interestingly, the person from Foxglove said that they had met Leo Vradker a bit back in January. Remember we were talking about that? And they only got a response from him after the meeting at seven o'clock on Tuesday night, which was like before they were doing the committee at like 9.30 in the, the following morning. So I'm sure it's a priority for him to take the tech companies to task. But this is a growing, growing issue. And the more people that speak out, obviously we had a quite a disturbing, but um, must listen, I think, episode with Facebook moderator before. I was. Uh, I noticed that uh, our tweets on moderators started getting traction again mm. uh, today. So, early, so it must have been because of that. Yep. So now let's go to the main bit. It's millennial inequality, intergenerational inequality, loss of future and the data that backs that up. And what can we do about it? So the idea that the millennial generation will be worse off than their parents has been documented in certain countries, primarily the US. Um, obviously, there was the impact of the Great Recession, home ownership now being the preserve of those scabby global investment funds, falling wages, rising around the lack of capacity to save. Oh my God, it's so depressing. And job insecurity have all coalesced to make things absolutely suck. Um, and then the glorious pandemic came and made all of these things even worse. So with the Irish government running around kind of like headless chickens now that they realise giant investment funds um, called vultures may not have the little guy's interest at heart and basically freaking out um, because the majority of young people know that that Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil's policies have really um, negatively impacted their futures. Um, 
so all of this kind of stuff is in the mix now. And we've been talking a lot, Andre, about the atmosphere on Twitter being like absolute lame is uh, revolutionary vibes. And then you see certain um, people who make really good stuff online, like Sean Burke doing these videos about like, uh, like Irish young people trying to figure out their future. And, and all of that kind of stuff is in, is, is in the mix right now. It kind of feels like we're at a bit of a tipping point, even though this stuff has been going on for the past decade. And so the ESRI published part of a report this week. The rest is coming on Friday. And they looked at, amongst other things, intergenerational inequality. We're joined by one of the authors of the report, Dr. Barra Roundtree, to discuss what's in the report and why it's made such an impact in the news this week. So Barra, first of all, what is your job and what does it entail? Uh, I'm an economist at the ESRI, and um, so a lot of my job entails sitting in my little room uh, at home now, thanks to COVID, uh, looking at kind of data, trying to analyze that, draw trends, reading about stuff that's going on elsewhere in the world and going, oh, does that happen in Ireland as well? And so that's kind of, that's most of it day to day. Uh, What's the background to this report that was released? So, so actually, the background is partly reading about things that are going on in other places. Okay. And um, so in the UK, we've known that these intergenerational inequalities exist because of some work that actually so, uh, some people I used to work with over in, in London did, the Institute for Fiscal Studies, um, an organisation with possibly an even more boring name than the Economic and Social Research <laughs> Institute. <laughs> but um, so they, they, you know, they, they'd done some work looking at this in the UK and they'd shown how there is these emerging intergenerational inequalities. And that got me thinking, I wonder, is that happening in Ireland? And so that's kind of how, how you know, you can see that we, we read lots about the housing situation. We, um, many of us have experienced it. And I suppose it was kind of to dig into that and to see, well, can we can provide some evidence to, to look into this? And is this something that's happening? Because it's not always the case that everything is going on the same in Ireland as it is in the UK or the US. And maybe we're going to come back to that later on. But here it is. Mm. Um, so you released part of the report already this week, um, kind of chapter four, which looks at intergenerational equality, as you say. Why, apart from like, obviously, like the stuff that you, you've you identified in other jurisdictions, but what, did you have an inkling? Um, there's obviously been an awful lot of anecdotal stuff around intergenerational inequality. Did you have an inkling that the situation was particularly severe in Ireland? And did that stack up? Um, so I, I think what made me kind of think about we should look at this is that Ireland had a much worse financial crisis than Britain did in terms of the fall in employment anyway. Um, I mean, their, their really wages have stagnated and stagnated across the population and incomes have stagnated, whereas in Ireland we saw a huge crash, but then a quite a rapid recovery on average. Um, and so the fact that we had had that made me think, well, you know, if you've got that kind of going on there and we've got kind of house price uh, we've got the big house prices increase we've and and decline before that, and then also the boom in rents. Well, kind of seems hard to understand how it isn't, but it, you know, the, it's not something that necessarily the CSO, the Central Statistics Office, publish all the time. It kind of is the type of thing that you need research organisations to go and look at, and uh, kind of, and that's so that's what we did. Mm. And what came out of it then in terms of the wages for young people before the pandemic, and then. Okay. Yeah, so so, so th- th- this was kind of the bit that, so this bit I wasn't really expecting, um, but really what I think I, I've taken from looking at this is that the labour market for young adults never recovered after the financial crisis. So if you look at employment uh, rates, if you look at the, uh, that as, you know, the number of employed as a share of the population, which is a bit more of a stable concept than unemployment because there's all finicky measurement issues that are dull and we don't have to go into. But if you just look at employment rates, 
they fell for everyone during the financial crisis. They fell by more for younger adults. Um, and then by about 2016 or so, they had recovered for people aged 35 plus. They've never got back to where they were for, for younger adults. And a bit of that is teenagers working, you know, working less and, and staying in school longer and education longer, which is a good thing. But that's not all of it. Um, a good chunk of it is people in their 20s uh, not being in work and not being in education and not being in training, what is gloriously called NEAT. Um, and so we can see that you know, the NEAT rate for young adults in, their, in 2024 is about a third higher than it was before the, the financial crisis, so back in 2007. God, that's a um, huge difference, isn't it? Yes, yeah, so it's about 30,000 uh, people between the age of 20 and 24 who are more, more than we would expect had the labour market recovered, um, who are not in education, employment or training. So that it's huge, yeah. Um, and then combined with that then, so you, ha- you have that kind of on the work side, but then combined with that, you seem to have a situation where earnings have stagnated at the start of working lives. Um, so if you look kind of through people's 20s, um, those born in the 1980s and the 1990s have earnings that are no higher, once you just for inflation, than people born in the 1970s. And I mean, that's stark, right? Because typically what we'd expect to see and what we have seen in Ireland is that earnings are higher at a given age for each successive generation. And that isn't the case. And it was, it was the case actually for people in the 1980s at the very start of their working life, right? And then the financial crisis came. And you can see, like, if you look at the, the, the data, you can see that then earnings on average fall below that of the 1970s. And they, never, they, they, they kind of have just started to maybe tick up there for, the, uh, you know, for, for that generation. But even that is kind of versus kind of, you know, oh, they've just started to recover to the earnings of people born in the 1970s during the worst bit of the Great Recession. That's not a high benchmark. Um, and, and so, you know, the impacts in the labour market, I think, are, to me, quite clear and, to me, suggestive of, and, and I don't think it, it can, you know, it doesn't definitively show, but to me, it's suggestive of what economists call scarring in the labour market. Um, and that's where, you know, there, there's this now huge body of research. And I think, I think actually sometimes people have maybe this idea of economics from maybe more from the 1960s and 70s when it was a very theoretical thing where people make broad sweeping statements about stuff and say, and that's why we have to do something very extreme. Uh, but r- recently, economics has become a lot more empirical. It's, a bit, it's you know, it's, it, it's, it's saying, well, this goes this direction, that goes that direction. What what, what what nets out? What what does the data show us? And a lot of it is kind of digging into like the real intricacies of the data and, and measurement. And so I, I, th- I think I think you're you talking know, about scarring there. Like, what's the scarring yeah. thing? So so the scarring is then a big research that's been done recently about how finishing up education, finishing up be that you know secondary school, further education, um, college, what whatever it is, during a time when uh, the labour market is poor. Uh, is really, really detrimental and has severe long-run outcomes uh, um, on people who, who can graduate into that recession. Now, you know, that kind of comes across as, you know, that, that, that's not surprising, right? That is kind of almost like self-evident, but it's the magnitude of these things that's really shocking. So, you know, you see kind of earnings are lower for, on average, for up to 10 years, employment rates are lower. Um, we see things like, you know, people of generations that graduate when, labour market is poor, are increasing, are more likely to be convicted of a criminal offence in the US and the UK. There's evidence in that. It goes, goes through to like political attitudes as well. There's good evidence showing that, you know, people people change their views of redistribution um, and, you know, who, who they might even vote for, right? So, th- so these things really matter. And there's this big push in terms of the research that's been done in this area showing this. And and so again, so I, I think what, what the report shows is consistent with that. It's not, 
you know, but, but and, and it's suggestive of that. But it, um, and it, it's concern. It's it's good reason to be worried. And obviously, it wouldn't be that much of a big deal if wages were staying the same, if the cost of living was staying the same. But it, but it's not. It wouldn't be as big as big a deal. I think it's still a big deal. I think you know you 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 expect that particularly because we have seen significant growth in Ireland since you know over the recovery. It, it's it, it's not just in GDP, and you know no one really looks at uh, at GDP because it's it's so distorted and misleading, right? But it's it's not just in kind of average living standards um, or average GDP that was gone up. We've seen that household income has gone up significantly over the last few years, but. You know, we we would expect that to feed through into higher earnings, but the f- fact then that, as you say, this combines with rapidly rising housing costs in a particular sector, in the private rental sector, right? And that's where that's where the affordability issues really are and have been for decades. So actually, there, there's some you know ESR researchers reading the other day from back in '89 talking about the dysfunctional private rental sector, and you see that in ESRI reports all through the '90s, all through the 2000s, and. It has been a long-term structural issue that there, there there are problems in the private rental sector and that it's a sector that gets ignored. So um, let's talk about housing then. How how have trends in housing and affordability and uh, lack of ownership really or opportunities to own over the past decade impacted young people um, and impacted intergenerational inequality as your research and the data shows it? Yeah, sure. So um, what we see, I think the most striking one is just the decline in home ownership rates, right? So at age 30 for people born in the 1960s, so, um, you know, people who were hit, uh, hitting 30 in the 90s, um, they use about 60% of them used to own their home at age 30. Uh, that's almost halved for people born in the 1980s. Uh, it was down as well for people born in the 1970s. So, you know, this this isn't just a, just about people born in the 1980s and 90s, not just about millennials, but this is this thing where over generations we've seen home ownership rates fall. And now, Ireland has a very high level of home ownership, and that you know needn't needn't be a problem if housing costs are affordable in all the sectors. But you know we we know there's not. We know as well that there's a growing share of each generation who are facing unaffordable housing costs, and so you know a, a benchmark of that is thirty um, percent, sorry, uh, of your disposable income in in, uh, in housing costs, and we know that that's been rising across generations. A share who are facing unaffordable housing costs. So for again, for people born in the 1970s, that was around kind of like 12% through their kind of mid-30s. It, it's now, you know, even 20% in the early 30s that are facing uh, unaffordable housing costs. And and again, that's a down to private sector, the private rental sector, because housing costs for homeowners have gone down in recent years, right? More interest rates are really low. So even though you might have to borrow more to, to get on the property ladder, if you can get on it, your housing costs are rel- probably relatively small to your, you know, if you can qualify for a mortgage, uh, your interest payments relative to your your income isn't a big deal. The, the the issue is then in the private rental sector and people's inability to go from the private rental sector to the to the uh, home ownership. Yeah, because like a mortgage is cheaper than rent. Generally. Yeah, absolutely. Like like you know, I I recently was lucky enough to be able to buy my own place. And my housing costs went down when you measure it. Like you look at the in mortgage interest as, and and that was for me sharing a house with multiple people versus me living on my own. You know that that's. That's just how big the differential is at the moment. And again, it, it really is in the private rental sector where housing costs have gone up. So, you know, since their trough in 2011, start of 2011 in Dublin, they've gone up by 85% on, on the basis of the, the RTB data. So it's kind um, of bananas when people are like, don't buy a house, stay in rental uh, accommodation. You're like, how can you do that? <laughs> yeah. And, and so, so the thing is then with with stagnant stagnant earnings, with um, with rising private rental costs, 
it becomes increasingly hard for people to make that transition and from, from rental into home ownership. And that's, I think, really concerning because, you know, if, if earnings were, as you say, were rising rapidly, then maybe the high rental costs wouldn't be yeah. such an issue, but they're not, they're stagnating. So we, we have then this issue of people who are trapped there. And again, there's, and there's maybe a lot of focus on the people who have home ownership just within their grasp, but there's a huge swathe of, co- of, of you know, the millennials who are very, very, very far from being able to qualify for mortgage. And so whatever about, you know, the situation of those who are on, you know, within grasp of home ownership is very important, but there is also another group who are even further away from that. That's such a pertinent point because we hear in media in particular and in the political sphere about, you know, wanting people to not be gazumped by investment funds or, you know, if you have your deposit, if you have 70 grand, 80 grand, this kind of stuff, like why shouldn't we be able to buy a house? And it's like, by the the amount of work it takes to actually get to that point belies the fact of the vast waves of people who are never going to get to that point at all. Yeah, and, and you know, hopefully it is never. Hopefully there is uh, a more well. Suppose, if if so long as we yeah. have these these yeah. tra- these trends and these policies, yeah, um, yeah. No, the, the, I think it, it's really really worrying. And again, because we know that this fit stuff feeds into political attitudes. So there's some research from the University of Cambridge which shows that you know millennials were the first group where a majority of them in their kind of twenties and thirties were dissatisfied with democracy. So you know they're. There is a real reason to be concerned with this beyond, above and beyond just the fact that it impacts the living standards of a large group of people. What other stuff did the report touch on? Um, so, in a di- so, so you know, we're kind of highlighting that you have this existing situation where the um, you've got rising housing costs in the private rental sector, you've got stagnant earnings, and a labour market for young adults has never really recovered from the financial crisis. Then comes the pandemic, right? And again, we know we know that. It is the case that young adults have disproportionately been affected. And so, so the one I think that really strikes me, the stat on that, is that at the end of 2020, when things were just kind of, you know, a little bit opening back up again in December, so it's not like it was at its worst, but there was 100,000, 112,000 uh, fewer 15 to 34-year-olds in work than a year earlier. So that's a 14% decline in employment uh, compared to 6% for people above the age of 35. Um, so, you know, it, I think for me that really shows that just the darkness of how much those job losses have fallen on younger adults. And, you know, why is that? Well, increasingly, it is the case that young adults are working in sectors like retail, hospitality, arts, leisure, and those are the sectors that were hit by the pandemic. So that's a big part of it. Um, and, and you know, that, that's always been true. And it's always been true that young adults work in those sectors, that they're working behind the bar or they're working in, in the arts sector. But it, whereas for people who were in the 1970s, about a third of them, did say in their early 20s worked in those sectors, it, it's more like half for people who were in the 1990s. So there's been a shift in the composition of employment. And that kind of links in with something that we see in other countries, whereby younger people are starting, uh, they're working their careers, their, their working lives, I mean that in an inclusive way of uh, covering lots of, you know, could cover anything, but they're starting lower down the wage ladder and they're finding it more difficult to progress. And that's something that we see in lots of countries. So it's not, this isn't an issue exclusive to Ireland, but I think in Ireland it is exacerbated by the scale of the financial crisis and how that was again focused on younger adults. And that, you know, that's not even accounting for immigration, by the way, you know, in, mm. in that those falls in employment rates leave out the fact that huge swathes of those cohorts left. And well, some have come back, not all have. A lot of this is very familiar to people who've been living it um, or commenting on it or writing about it or whatever. Um, and 
it's so good to have a report like this that then actually says, well, you know, these aren't just, this isn't just anecdotal and this isn't just experiential. This is, this is the data. What role does the ESRI have in terms of this kind of research having an impact at policy level? Um, hopefully a, a big one. I mean, so, so actually the reason that we did this report and got to focus on this was because we got a grant from uh, the Community Foundation for Ireland, who are a philanthropic organisation. Um, I kind of see them as a, a, a co-op of philanthropists and they, they funded this work and they um, and this report and gave us the scope to kind of explore what we thought was interesting and important. So in a way, you know, I, like I, there is great... Uh, what potential at the ESRI to kind of look into these issues and and when we have the the you know and for, for this I was particularly it was great that we got the support to be able to do that and look into those things so I, th- I think we have the ability to put it on the agenda and we can you know we, we do lots of work my colleagues do some incredible work on well, across a whole range of issues but on housing right there, been, we've been doing a huge amount of work on that um colleagues Connor O'Toole Rachel Slaymaker and Kieran McQuinn uh, just to name a few but like they, they've been doing a huge amount of work on the policies that we can implement to address the issues in the housing crisis. So we know stuff that kind of can work and, and can address these things. And I suppose maybe what the stuff that we've put out now in the last few days can just show, maybe highlight how important it is that that, that is done. Yeah, because there's mad eat the rich energy like around at the moment. And as you say, that can go in multiple different directions. It can go in the way that, you know, what's identified often in, in amongst conspiracy theorists, for example, or people who subscribe to conspiracy theories is an economic trauma um, from the Great Recession or people gravitating towards uh, far-right or fascistic politics when you look at, you know, um, Trump's cult, for example. But equally, it can cause a demographic demographic shifts shifts in in voting um as has been happening in 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 Ireland from us going from a center right kind of voting trends to center left what do you extrapolate from the pressure i suppose that's being put on younger people a very very large number um of them and what the political impacts can be like when you were kind of researching other jurisdictions what were you seeing come out that could be relevant to Ireland um so I think it has potential to go in that way that you, you kind of say, uh, and that again illustrates why how, how important it is to, to address these challenges. In terms of, you know, I, I think then some of the big issues it raises are about, well, there's kind of maybe a growing consensus that we want a bigger state or a bigger role for the state in lots of areas. The IMF uh, is saying that as well, like, which indeed, is, yeah. they're yeah, hardly, yeah, yeah. you know, at the barricades, like... <laughs> well, well, you know, <laughs> they, they, they sometimes are, but yeah, no, they, 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 they get a hard rap. I, you know, I, I'd consider giving a preference to the IMF if they were. <laughs> um, but um, no, I mean, like, I, th- I, I, I so they're, they're, I think one of the things that they actually have been doing a lot of work highlighting is growing inequality globally, right? And then one thing that's interesting there is that Ireland actually stands out as a country where inequality across the population as a whole in terms of income hasn't increased, it's actually gone the other way. It's gone down. And so that's actually part of the report then that we're publishing again. Like since since the 80s, income inequality in Ireland has gone down. We're one of the few countries in Europe, uh, I think alongside France, uh, over this kind of time frame where inequality, as, as it's conventionally measured across the population as a whole, has declined and declined significantly. And so, we, you know, we did, we did kind of lots of good things along the way in terms of that, in terms of like, you know, again, that, that the growth that we saw over the 90s uh, and, the, and the 2000s was 
broad based and progressive. It wasn't just like it was for the top one or ten percent. Has, has our saw... inequality? Sorry to interrupt you there, but because I because that is the thing around income inequality going down is something that is often used by politicians mm-hmm. to pour water on on people discussing inequality in society. But is that not because we were starting from such a low base in the seventies and eighties? No, no, no. So I think the the level of growth was. You right. know, I think it, like we had catch up growth. Um, um, so we were kind of like a, a tortoise catching up with the hare from that respect. It was kind of was put by former central bank uh, governor Patrick Conan has a kind of famous thing about you know this was us just catching up that that growth that we had done so badly for so long over the 20th century that this was just us catching up. But that doesn't have to be broad based or inclusive growth, and that it was is actually something that I think you know we should learn from and understand and like why is that? How were we able to ensure that living standards of those at the bottom of the distribution were increased alongside those in the middle and the top? And actually increased by more, if you look in, as in terms of proportionally how those living standards grew. Um, but that doesn't mean that you know there aren't other inequalities. And I think this is maybe one of the issues. When you know, income inequality means across the population as a whole, generationally there are clearly inequalities there. Mm. And those inequalities I think are growing. Uh, those two things aren't incompatible. And I don't think we we don't need them to be either. And I think there's maybe sometimes there is maybe a effort. Or, or there's kind of, I think, we, we read what's going on in the US and the UK and we say, oh, that's also the same here. And we're kind of quite exposed to the, ang- uh, you know, the, the Anglo um, media and we hear about that. But what's going on here is different. Now, there's some similarities in terms of that generational thing. So that's very similar to what's going on in Britain. Um, but at the same time, you know, like in Britain, poverty is increasingly an in-work phenomenon. That's not the case here. It is still the case that you are most likely to be in poverty uh, in Ireland if there is no one in your house in work. Uh, you know, that's among the working age people. So uh, lone parents, again, there's extremely high rates of poverty and deprivation among that group. And there has been continually through the 90s and 2000s. And part of that is linked to the low levels of employment there. And obviously there are, you know, good reasons around childcare and the availability of that for, for, for that. But in ter- again, in terms of kind of like understanding where do we go is that if your objective is to address inequality in Ireland, it's not necessarily about income inequality across the population as a whole. I think mm-hmm. you want to kind of say, well, where are the problems? Generationally, it's clear it's on the young, um, lone parents, people live, single people living on their own as well, a group that don't get very much play, right? It, it, it's single adults who are living on their own and, and don't have someone else there in their household. It, the, the level of unemployment benefit that they get is, is you know, maybe not enough to lift them over the poverty line. So there's a whole bunch of things around there. And I think it leads you to very different conclusions about what you want to do to address these issues, right? It, that, that's maybe one of the things why it's important to get into the nuance of, you know, where, is it, where are the inequalities in society rather than the maybe falling into the trap of, well, inequality is rising in just in a general abstract way. So what is the solution then? So, okay, we'll, we'll, there are many. <laughs> so, in terms of addressing some of those issues I mentioned, so, you know, there is a role for in work benefits. So, there's what, what's now called the Working Families Payment, what was the, the artist formerly known as the Family Income Supplement. Um, that plays an incredibly important role in lifting many families who have someone in work out of poverty. Right? So, that's an income top up given to low income families with kids. Um, and if you work at least 20 hours a week, kind of on average, you get this top up and it brings your income up to a level. That's incredibly effective at, at um, reducing poverty and particularly amongst that age group. So, you know, if you, if you do have a lone parent who's in work and who works enough that they get that payment, they're going to be brought up above the poverty line. And that's you know, a very clear way of helping them. But there's no equivalent of that for people without kids mm. for adults or for couples. Right. And, that, and that's something that exists in other countries. So, you know, if you're talking about how do we address 
that the, you know poverty or deprivation amongst that group. That's one thing to look at. Um, in terms of housing, uh, one of the things we highlight in the report is that we have a system of uh, housing supports for low-income people, which are relatively untouched in recent years. So, and we have the housing assistance payment, which was introduced and you know made lots of fanfare, and it is growing in importance. Right, it's been rolled out now, and lots lots of people on it. But the maximum rent that you can get a property for under that hasn't been increased since 2017, since when rents have gone up by about a quarter. Yeah, which so, is ridiculous, yeah. And it, it means like, you know, there's been research out from Simon Community and others on this, which have shown that there's very few properties available in most cities, um, particularly again for actually single adults, right? You know, because you can't, you can't get half as a single adult for a, a three-bed house. You can only get like for one or maybe one and a half order. And so, well, as, in addition to there being a incredible shortage of supply of those, there's very few available for the limits that are placed on them. So again, that that's another you know revisiting that it, it doesn't really make I think much sense why you want to introduce a, a, a rent a, you know a cap on the the amount that can be paid for a place and then not increase it for five six years. It's something which should be revisited each year in the same way that you do the rate of social welfare payments, right? And, and now there's a whole set of issues around like okay, well if we increase that, will that feed through to higher rents because landlords capture some of it? Like, there's some complicated issues there, but to just leave it where it is doesn't really make much sense. Hmm. What else are you working on right now? Uh, well, uh, we have a paper coming out next week on options for increasing taxes, uh, precisely because, as you as you mentioned, um, you know there is, I think, a bit of an appetite of taxes are going to need to rise to fund the levels of public services that maybe people are wanting in a post pandemic era. We're, we're not going to have a health service that's going to operate at you know ninety x percent capacity. We're, there, there's there there's really a kind of a, a idea that we should probably have more capacity built into the system for surge in the case of global pandemics or whatever. And so, you know, how, if that's the case, we've also got, you know, rising um, uh, numbers of people who are above the age of 65. And, and we're due to go from being a country with very favourable demographics from that point of view to one with not so favourable demographics over the course of the next 30 years. So that's going to impose additional costs on taxpayers. On top of that, we've got an over-reliance on corporation tax, right? We, we, we know that we get a huge boon from the multinationals that operate here in terms of the, the corporation tax that they pay. But that's not entirely in our hands. That, a lot of that might dissipate. We've got about $3 billion of motor tax revenues, which are linked to fossil fuels, which we're going to largely move away from in the coming years. Uh, so we have some serious, I think, thinking to do about, well, how do we fund the public services we want if we want more and better public services and we want to be able to finance them? Because whatever about the pandemic in the short run, where it's fine. The government can borrow and think, you know, economists are actually really unified on this, that it is the right thing to do to for countries to borrow immensely and spend widely to essentially put the economy in life support. But that's not the case in the longer term, right? If you're going to have a much bigger stage, you need to pay for it. And so how do we pay for it? There's mm-hmm. lots of options to consider there. And, you know, ultimately how we do that is a political decision. But again, where ESRI, I think, can kind of come into it and the research we do can come into it by providing evidence about, well, if you do this, it might have that effect. It might benefit this group. It might affect that group negatively it's up to you that's that's the kind of role that we play and it's i think an important one can you make sure that austerity isn't in there please <laughs> <laughs> so so again those are ultimately i think political choices in that sense right and and, and again now is very different to how it was before in that we aren't fen- face, facing any kind of financing cliff and you know this is more about a, a change in the level of government that we want to see in society. And again, this is me staying entirely neutral on it, but you can see that across the political spectrum.
spectrum, right? There's people talking about, oh, we need more spending here, more spending here, more spending here. No one is suggesting kind of cutting back on any particular area of spending. So in that case, well, let's talk about how we're going to fund it. Before you go... (laughs) (laughs) You're you're remaining very neutral there. uh, Studiously. Studiously. Before you go, when you were like researching all this stuff in Ireland and putting this report together and seeing all these facts that are quite stark, where people might, like me, might write anecdotally about something, but here you have like the hard data. Did you end up feeling positive or negative about the future for people in their 20s and 30s and early 40s in Ireland? Well, so actually, I I, I think the positive in in this sense, I'll tell you why. The research also that we've done also shows that the government has the capacity to affect huge change when it sets its mind to it. So what our report shows was that at the end of the 90s, almost one in two pensioners were below the poverty line. Um, People decided rightly, you know, that that was an issue that needed addressing. It was decided that the government was going to prioritise that and the state pension was increased by 50% in real terms over the course of the 2000s. And that left um, pensioners from going from being the age group who were most at risk of poverty uh, back, you know, at the turn of the century, to the one who were the least at risk. So I think that, for me, demonstrates that if there is political will, and I mean political will across society at large, not just government or opposition or whatever, but if we decide that this is something that we want to tackle, I think there are lots of solutions on the tables. There's difficult decisions and trade-offs along the way, but government has capacity to affect huge social change, and so from that point of view, I think there is reason to be optimistic that if this becomes an issue we want to address, we can. Mm -hmm. Youth pension, UBI, (laughs) a mention. (laughs) Um, That's really fascinating. And the report is excellent. I look forward to reading it in full. Uh, The final, the whole of it is published Friday, right? Yeah, that's right. And we're having a launch event on that morning and we'll have responses from uh, Karen Kiernan of the One Family Organization and Centre Lynn Ruan. That's right. You can you can join that webinar. Um, if you go to esri.ie, there's a, there's a webinar about poverty, income, inequality, income inequality, and living standards in Ireland um, on Friday, and you can register right now on the ESRI's website. Is there canapes? Uh, I'll, I'll be having some. No, I won't. I, I, I'll be having a slice of toast. Uh, Dr. Barr Roundtree, you are an economist at the ESRI. That has been very informative. Thank you so much for joining us on United Ireland. Thanks for having me on. So, this week, getting in the sea. I just thought I'd really take a, a break from the usual and. Uh, Try something new for getting in the sea. <laughs> no, it's the same thing again. Uh, how can the white water rafting be getting in the sea again? I hear you ask. Like, how can it? Well, my friends, spending on the white water rafting has doubled from what it was meant to be to 1.3 million. 1.3 million before, like, it even has permission to go ahead since the end of 2019. Like, I want to get sick in my mouth. That's what they've spent on it so far. That's what they've spent on trying to make it happen, basically. Yeah. Yeah. 1.3 million. Um, And the imbitsness of this has been highlighted by the fact that in the same constituency, Sean McDermott Street Pool closed two years ago. Has there's no amenities for the people in the locality to swim uh, for two years. They need to get tiles fixed, but there's no money to spend on fixing a pool that already exists that's just been closed lying lying vacant for two years doesn't that just make you actually 
want to scream from the top of your voice, get in the fucking thing. The pits. Okay. I feel like we need, we may need a new like scream therapy segment on the podcast where we just have like loads of cartoon screams. Maybe we we will do that. (laughs) Andrew, can you please put in some screams there to illustrate our rage? (gasps) And now it's bananas. Now this is equal parts bananas and equal parts rage inducing. Um, Councillor Claudia Higgins, uh, she is in Galway and she put a little tweet together saying that she is calling on uh, on her fellow councillors to, to put in these uh, wheelchair accessible seating, um, which were uh, benches that had been siphoned off into individual seats. So there'd be a seat at one end and a seat at the other and then a gap in the middle where uh, a wheelchair would go. Obviously, not one bit of consultation with wheelchair users because the minute it went up, uh, the amount of wheelchair users were like, are you absolutely crazy? This is not one bit useful Um, for various reasons. The wheelchairs are all different sizes. You'll be sticking out from the people who you want to sit with. Um, And a lot of people came back with, this is actually an example of wheelchair accessible seating um, with actual solutions. And there was like, it's actually just a ruse for um, anti-homeless sleeping uh, benches. Um, but I think what was more interesting than that, so she got absolutely hauled. It was, it made international uh, coverage. Like I think it was in the New York times or something. Um, and they're like bits <laughs> and, uh, but more so like, okay, that happens. You, if you would think that you would be like, okay guys, I'm really sorry. I got it wrong. I was just trying to do my, uh, do what I thought was right. But you know what? I put my hands up. I got it fucking wrong. It's in bits. But instead came out with the like, I am just trying to do what's right. And I am now being trolled and it's all for me. And it's literally like, are you joking? Can you not actually just figure out how to apologize for, for misstepping? You made a mistake. Um, and then it was just around that time. We, the, obviously the WhatsApp group chat was hopping, uh, but someone put in this clip that is the image of a Fianna Gael councillor not being able to admit they're wrong. How dare you treat me with such disrespect? I got you off the streets and this is how you repay me? Got me off the streets? I, I live at 59th and Park. Whatever. You know, those big Fine Gael tears are just a, a complete genre within their own, in their defensiveness, you know? Especially when... Uh, this is going to sound totally sexist. I'm going to say it anyway, especially when it's... Hang on, should you? (laughs) I talk. Especially when um, you often see it, not not just with Fine Gael people. Obviously, as somebody who's experienced plenty of abuse and harassment online as a woman, I understand this, that feeling completely. But like when people, um, when like conservative or just like... not very smart female politicians do something that's an absolute bits and then people go like you're terrible this is an awful idea and then they're just like women get abused on the internet it's like shut up <laughs> shut up <laughs> like as a woman as a woman and as a mother <laughs> um no but I just I just find that uh, that ridiculous it's like it's not you being trolled it's you doing something that's actual violence like against homeless people um and also there's a, <clears throat> an appeal to stop uh cancel culture and instead 
realize that consequences are consequences. Yeah, as Sarah Shulman says about political, when people say, that's political correctness, that's political correctness, she says, and the same can be said for like people going, oh, cancel culture, cancel culture. She always says that those things are the classic supremacist response to demands of accountability. So be accountable, just apologize and do better. Now, our fave bits. Andrea, what is your favorite stuff this beautiful week? My fave bits this week. I have literal no culture in my life this week, so it's a really shit fave bits. Obviously, the Nash Gal, the RHA being back open again. I'm sweating to go back, but I haven't been back yet, but I will. Booking my appointments in. Stash, finally able to have art in my soul. Um, but in the meantime, I'm filling my eyes with other art, namely by the version of Sex in the City. Have you heard of it? <laughs> uh, I literally watch it every night and it's such a calming uh, balm for my soul at the moment. So Sex in the City, I just want to give a shout out. If you haven't watched it yet, look it up. I think you might like it. <laughs> <laughs> Um, oh my god my last favorite bit i'm just so glad for you to we we love we love introducing new contemporary art to our audience and i love that you are doing that yeah finger on the pulse here with the future (laughs) culture yeah i really think it's gonna take off real it's got a feminist-y vibe and the clothes the clothes oh my god (laughs) And oh my God, Mr. Big. Ha, what about him? <laughs> uh, so, and finally, because I've no other culture in my life, my fave bit is mo- mostly interior stuff. My yellow resin floor that I'm in the middle of is coming along absolutely stunningly. It was slime green for ages and it's gone yellow uh, with the pour today. So anyone interested in yellow resin floors, I'm here for it. Okay. <laughs> It's a niche interest, but one that I enjoy. It's not that niche. Resin floors. The amount of people who are literally like, what's the update on that? I'm like, okay, calm down. I've obviously been waiting for it. I don't know. I literally like, I need to know how this floor is going. Well, everybody's waiting. Everybody's waiting for the multiple interior um, uh, features on your gaff. Everybody's waiting. The world is waiting. Um, I'm a private person. I just want my own space and my own time and my own personal uh, freedom. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so my favorite. <laughs> my favorites are God, we're very giddy today. So you know the way I was binging on The Sopranos for yeah. ages, and I actually had to pull back a bit because you You're just thinking of becoming a gangster. <laughs> is because you just become too immersed in the world and it's just quite dark. So I was like, you know, I'm going to take a couple of weeks break from The Sopranos and then when I go back to it, I'll appreciate it more. Um, so I was like, I'm just going to watch like happy clappy things and I watched this film. I've heard of Sex in the City. Shut up, Andrea. I'm trying to talk about my fave bits. The, the, this film. So, okay, it's on Amazon Prime. Obviously, Amazon's totally trash. But the only reason that I'm watching things on Amazon is because Sarah got a free subscription with her phone. I have to say it. I have to say it. I don't I don't shop on Amazon. I don't like Jeff Bezos in a shock development. Okay, so this movie is called The Map of Tiny Perfect Things. And it's, you know, when you just want like a really like nice and sweet kind of indie that reminds you of all of those films from like the early 2000s, like 
500 Days of Summer or like Garden State or Jonah and whatever the hell's infinite playlist, whatever. Maybe this is Manhattan. <laughs> this, the Map of Tiny Perfect Things, time travel film, very, very cute, very sweet, great script. So if you want the, the, that little, you know, nice, um, totally non-offensive uh, magic in your life to watch, uh, I'd go with that if you just need a bit of a break. I know you're in the middle of your fave bits. Can I just interject for one moment to add Benifer to my fave bits? Oh, J-Lo yeah. and Ben Affleck back in biz. It's, and it's 17 years later, the same amount of times as the cicadas are coming out. Yes, as if you listen to our Sunday Soothe last Sunday, which was all about Brood X, the, uh, the cicada brood that is about to blow 17 years in hibernation. Um, my other fave bits, I like Based and Vice on Clumbrassel Street in Dublin. <laughs> my life is very small, but um, I just like, you know, places that are making interesting use of space. It's been there for ages and they have good hot sauce and good wine and the coffee's nice. My other fave bit is Array Studios from Belfast were nominated for the Turner Prize. Like wow. amazing. So there's five collectives nominated for the Turner Prize this year, which I love that that's the approach they're taking. Array, they're a bunch of deadly people. They do amazing work. And I just think for a collective from Belfast who to be nominated for one of the most prestigious art prizes in the world is absolutely fantastic. So well done to all of the Array crew. Um, yep. I did did a talk at the one of their... Um, things that they were doing uh, in 2019 uh, at Jerwood Arts in London and it was a really great experience. It was a great night. So I'm really, really happy for those guys. And now... Book of the Week. Book of the Week. My Book of the Week is I've spoken about Morbid Books before, the publisher. Uh, My Week Without Gerard was one that I highlighted before in the podcast. Um, This is another publication by Morbid Books, very short book. It's called Takeaway. It's by ostensibly Tommy Hazard, but that's actually a pseudonym. It's a name for an ambulance driver that it's written in the voice of. Um, So it's basically about a ambulance driver in Hackney and his life and all of the mad shit he sees and experiences. And it's intense and it's quite brilliant. And not for the faint-hearted, I would say, but it's quite short and I really, really enjoyed it. It's got a lot of empathy. So there you go. Takeaway, that one's called, by Tommy Hazard. They've just released a new edition called the Black Death Edition. Uh, so that'll give you some... Um, a kind of indication of, of what the book is concerns with. Okay, so this podcast is produced by Andrew Mangan and Castaway Media. Crystal Clear gave us his tune to Chicken Roll for our soundtrack. Sarah Fox to Dollar Design. What is the tune this week? It's a reminisce. Um, it's been coming on my soundtrack as the sun is coming out. I've been sipping a little Bev, Beverino on the patio and the perfect soundtrack to it, Republic Elites. You know it. I'm always so sad that they are not around anymore. They were just a great sp- band, a brilliant, brilliant band. I just really love them. I've been Una Malali. I've been Andrea Horan. <laughs> I found it hard to say my name there. Um, this has been United there's, Ireland. There's a lot of L's in there. There's a lot of L's. There's four L's. This has been United Ireland. And that was intergenerational equality. Next up, Revolutione. <laughs> <laughs> what?
lights, I start running Stop trying to come when I come and stop running You obvious You're so obvious I'm sorta solo slot and I don't wanna stop So baby girl, don't stop me Stop the beat, I'm not ready Hold on until I get my legs a little more steady Wait a minute That's bad I mean better than a veteran and real more heavy Make up my mind up. You know, we know. 